Good morning and welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman and I'm sitting with my esteemed colleagues at the firm, Cynthia Ockley-Barbudo and Nicholas Iannuzzi Jr. And we're going to be talking today about two topics that we have lots of opinions about. One is when to separate and the ramifications and risks of separating. And two are the risks of filing or not filing that complaint for divorce and getting a divorce started. So hi, everybody. Hi, Hindel. So we're talking about what happens when people aren't getting along in their marriage and what are some of their options. And one option, of course, is for them to separate, but there are some pros and cons of doing that. So what are those? Well, everybody's looking at me, so I guess I'll start. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think that there comes a point in a marriage, just when a marriage is ending, at least from my experience, is that, that people recognize it is coming to an end. So what is the next question is, should we separate? Do we file for divorce? What do we do next? And separation, I think, is a valuable tool because people, if you're so ingrained in somebody else's life and somebody else is so ingrained in your own life, it's difficult to even figure out what to do next. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so separation is a valuable tool Mm -hmm. because you can figure out, get to a different place, figure out, okay, am I better off with or without him or her? Yeah. And what are the consequences of their choices? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Especially with our kids involved. I don't personally have kids, but uh, a lot of our clients do. And I know that that creates an absolutely different level to whether or not a marriage is working is whether or not the family unit is working. And it's a completely different analysis. But the first thing that that people seem to be concerned about is, okay, I think we need to separate. Will I lose my rights to my home? Yeah, I get that question a lot. Yeah, I get that question too. And what do you... No, you you don't. You lose your rights to your home, I tell them. And I, I try to appease people of that notion, you know, and taking a step back for one second, sometimes separation also eases the anxiety in the home. It helps with the children. It helps the children feel that tension. The children feel that, you know, that animosity between the parents. And sometimes one party or the other won't leave. And if they voluntarily leave, then I think that that's good. in one situation. But we have a whole other situation where if one party won't leave, but I mean, we can talk about that. Sometimes someone won't leave. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a- talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. But I tell clients, if you do leave, sometimes it's for your own sanity, well-being. No, you won't lose your house or your rights to to your home, but you should also have a a parenting plan in place with your spouse so that you'll get to see your children and try to get as much time with your children as possible because when you do finally go into court, that'll be the status quo depending on how long you separate. So that will be what the court looks at. One distinction I wanted to make is that when if you don't you don't lose your rights to the equity in the home or the value of the home, but you do lose potentially lose your rights to access to it. Right. Right. I mean, right. the person living there, the other person, other spouse, could get sole use and occupancy, which means you, the one who doesn't live there anymore can't just walk in anymore. Right. Right. It's but not it, necessarily a lockout, but there's a, there is a boundary. It makes it a lot harder at the end of the process to get, unless there's an agreement of some kind, to get one party who is left back into the house for purposes of living there Yeah. versus 
keeping the status quo with one, one out. party's here and one party's there, and that's just the way it's been since the parties decided to separate. So when you make that decision, I think you really need to know, no, you won't lose your equity, you won't lose your right to your house, but are you okay with establishing a new residence and accepting the fact that there's a good likelihood that you're not going to go back to that residence? Yeah. You may. It's never impossible, but it's less likely. Right. It's a short-term loss. Yeah. For a long-term gain, I think. I think so. You know, people likely don't get back into the marital home once they leave, I, th- I think. And mm-hmm. that's for, for the better of everyone, I believe, unless yeah. the parties reconcile. But in the long term, mm-hmm. the house will either be sold or whatever happens to the house. Eventually. Well, to Eventually. be determined, yeah. To be determined. Hard to know at the beginning. But it's hard what for somebody happen? to walk in and out of the house um, Especially when you have children. Yeah. So the goal in separation is that everybody gets their own peaceful place to live without interruption or less conflict and begin the transition to whatever their new choices are, but at least calm down the situation down a little bit. Have you had situations where neither spouse has wanted to leave the marital home? (laughs) (laughs) We're all laughing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I've had more than my, my share of people not wanting to to leave and and judges actually keeping people together in in the house together which which i find unfortunate and very unfortunate yeah Yeah. it raises that animosity level the heat index in that house oh absolutely i call it a tinderbox you know you don't know what's going to happen next and i really always fear restraining orders or the next thing to happen yep exactly oh and that is sometimes what happens the consequences yeah the consequences Mm -hmm. And then you hear stories about the old couple that decide to get divorced and they go to court together. Actually, I had a case where a couple, I asked my client, hey, how did you get to court this morning? Oh, we drove together. I said, (laughs) really? She said, "Um, yeah, we drove together. I I woke him up. We we, we came in together. (laughs) So there's the... Complete opposite type of case. And uh, and then there's the people who, you know, they can't stand within 100 yards of the hallway together yeah. of, a, of a court. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. And then there's some people who just barricade themselves. I've had one case, a guy barricaded himself in the room. It became a fire issue where he was burning, this is a recent case, burning newspapers to stay warm in the, in the basement of a home. Goodness. Wow. Yeah, sometimes people separate within their homes because by the time we see people for divorces, they're usually living in separate bedrooms. At they've least. separated in the house. Mm. At least. And they're just kind of roommates, right? And then eventually one of them moves out and they separate for a while. But they try to find their new equilibrium. Right. But my fear of when I advise someone to move out is I want to make sh- sure that they still have access to the kids. So I like yeah. to have an ag- written agreement early on. It's not anywhere. It's not the divorce agreement yet, yeah, because we're far from that point, but have something in writing where there's a parenting plan agreed upon for predictability purposes for everyone, the kids and the parents, so right. that the parent who's leaving the house gets to know that they can see their kids, the kids know that they're not going to lose contact with the, their parent leaving the house, and it takes a little bit of the fear out of the change situation. Absolutely. Because even though it's not binding per se by a court, yeah. you present something like that to the court, and it's, it's likely to be given a lot of weight. Yeah. Which is important. Well, it also puts the kids front and center in the, yeah, in the divorce. Absolutely. You know, you focus first on them before you get to the money issues. 
and try to keep some piece of the status quo or create a new status quo that at least people can live with for a short period of time. And give the kids time to adjust. Yeah. That uh, they need time to, kids are resilient, but they need time to adjust and transition and figure out what their new role is in this family and what the new family role is right. for them. Well, I find it to be that I'd rather see a person move out than having people sleep in separate bedrooms or on couches. Too. It just doesn't. It just doesn't play well with the kids. I don't think the kids necessarily understand, depending on their ages and things like that. When you can cut the tension with a knife, right? So, I mean, the kids can feel that regardless of how old they are. But but then again, we have the cases where somebody with three kids will move out of the house and get a one-bedroom apartment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the next, next thing. topic. Yeah, yeah that I was we were going to bring up is if you're if you're going to move out and you have kids, it's one thing. If you're going to move out as a as a uh, just a solo person, you don't have kids. It's just a marriage, just splitting. Okay, you can get that little studio that's about the size of a closet mm-hmm. and, and do okay on your own. But if you're having kids, if you have kids and you're moving out, for God's sakes, think about where you're moving in relation to where the kids are going to school, where their primary residence is, or if you're going to have shared primary residences, the feasibility of the new location versus the current marital home and yeah. parenting plan. These are all things. And the size Get enough space for your kids. Even if they have to share a room, make sure there's enough space for your kids in there so that they can have a comfortable environment with yeah. both parents. Yeah, it is. You know, it's obviously a financial decision, too, because now, yeah. you know, yeah. finances of supporting two households effectively, right. it's obviously a fact, a big factor. But I think the compromise is that kids will maybe not have their own bedroom anymore in that parent who's out of the marital home. And kids adjust pretty well to those yeah. space things. I mean, they're not happy, obviously. Parents are splitting up, but... I think there are things that parents can do to make that new space fun for them and make the transition a little easier for them, even if the child doesn't get to have their own bedroom anymore, you know, separate bedroom. You know, sofa beds work or bunk beds work or something, you know, just so people can be together. Obviously, there are people in the world who live in small spaces. Right. <laughs> and <Right>. share <laughs> share smaller spaces. But we've also had the situation where once people separate and they move out, they don't want to take the children to their extracurricular activities. <laughs> yes, we mm-hmm. have had that problem. Yes. I've had that. They don't want to drive them to school. Yeah. They don't want to drive them to anything related to their previous life in their previous town. And they'll sign them up for extracurricular activities in their new town. So they'll be playing dual activities. I've had that. Yeah. So many times, and it's so unfair. Some cases get really derailed on that topic of extracurricular extracurricular and the transportation. Oh, I've had so many times where young children are either playing soccer, basketball, gymnastics. I've had a client two years in a row who's probably spent X amount of dollars fighting over who gets the first night of the dance recital and who gets the second night. It's just... Yeah, it is it's amazing. It's, it's absurd. It's uh, highly emotional, these kinds of things with the kids. Yeah, the extracurricular activities, they have a disagreement over yeah. soccer versus 
whatever. Lacrosse or something. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's just incredible. You know, it's not wise to spend a lot of legal time on these kinds of issues. That's why those parenting coordinators are useful, I but sometimes they're, they're not in place. Both spouses have to agree to put a parenting coordinator in place to resolve these extracurricular issues. And of course, there's a cost to a parenting coordinator too, although not the cost of two attorneys. But it's far less of an attor- yeah. than an attorney. I wish there was a simpler way of resolving these these scheduling issues. I do too. You know. But you have to, like we said, you have to have a parenting plan worked out, which also would incorporate on weekends, you have to have an agreement to take the children to the extracurricular activities. Yeah. Right. And like you said, proximity, if someone lives on the South Shore and they decide to move on the North Shore and you have an every other weekend schedule or you have three out of four, you know, schedules are different now where most dads aren't Wednesday every other weekend anymore. They're mm-hmm, more right. complex. So yeah. you've got to now agree to, if you move farther distance away, you've got to take the, the children to their extracurricular activities and you've got to, to do those things. And that should be part of your parenting plan. From the outset. You, from the outset. Yeah. Because that's important to everyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, focusing, too, on vacations, anticipated vacations and yeah. holidays, because those come up quickly. And the divorce can be pending for a year or so. And so, obviously, you're covering vacations and holidays during that period of time. The holidays, the birthdays, those are big ones. Camp. People now mm. in our society, we, I mean, you could have a child celebrating a number of different holidays um, Mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the big right of first refusal is now a hot one for that I've been dealing with. How does that work? Mom and dad want to go out on a particular night. Yeah. The other spouse would like the right of first refusal on taking care of the the child or children instead of them calling a A babysitter babysitter first, which I, I think is fair enough. Yeah. I warn clients about that a little bit, though, especially when they make the time frame too small. I Because what you're doing is you're creating this continued engagement um, between interaction them, yeah. and engagement with one another. And I understand the importance behind the right of first refusal, and I understand why people want it. But I, I think that when we're, we're dealing with the long run, every time you want to do something uh, during your parenting plan where you have to estimate the number of hours that you're going to be gone and see if it's within that right of first refusal and then send it. Somebody will end up in contempt. Somebody, its mistakes will be made. It creates a lot of continued interlocked mm-hmm. relations between the parents that I, I try to get parents to really think about it before they want to do that. And if you're going to do a right of first refusal... Make it an extended period of time, six hours or something like that. I agree because these two and three hour right of your first refusals, you're just asking for so much trouble. Yeah, I see your point. The thing is, too, on the parenting plan, I always add in unless mutually agreed. I mean, so you can make any parenting plan you want and you can change it, both of you, if both both parents want to. You know, well, fortunately, if, if they can get along, at least for the kids, there can yeah. be some cooperation on that level, including what we're talking about, that right of first refusal right. concept. Mm-hmm. So not built it in there. Well, just to be clear, a right of first refusal is what? What are you thinking that means? If I have the kids, it's my weekend, yeah. and I'm going to go out to dinner, and I'm Saturday night, and I'm planning on being gone for whatever number of hours, let's say four hours or more, yeah. I send a text to my ex and say, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to hire a babysitter. I need you to let me know if you would rather take the kids. Uh-huh. 
And so that we give is, the other parent the right, right, yes. the right, right to, first before right hiring, first, a, which means that the other parent and vice versa always knows what you're doing when you're going to be gone. What and I, I just yeah, think it creates too in, much. In some instances, it's an element of control. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it's more of a monitoring situation. And in some cases, it's more of, I just want to see my children as much as right. I can. It depends on the case. I guess it's a case-by-case yeah. case basis. Yeah, I believe so. I do think that as far as a parenting plan is concerned. And then also one that I've dealt with for years is the introduction of a significant other. All right. Well, that's a very good topic for another podcast. But today we're going to finish talking. About <laughs> All right. Oh, boy. There we go. The we just picked up the gasoline uh, can over the fire. There you go. <laughs> All right. We were talking about the risks of separation and the risks of delay. So what happens if someone's separated for a long period of time? What are the risks associated with that? Well, the marital assets continue to accrue. Yeah. Generally, they're not divisible until a divorce is in- entered. And so let's say you have a pension and you've been separated for five years. Yeah. While you've remained separated and you haven't filed and you haven't done anything to move the case forward, that pension continues to grow. And that is divisible until you get divorced, right. absent some very particular types of arguments. This is the situation. A good example of this is during this Trump administration where people, if they were separated, they started before the Trump administration, and then the, and then the market blew up. Right. And they stayed separated, and they decided to get divorced recently. A lot of people made a lot of money who stayed separated and then decided to get divorced. So they have to sep- they have to divide that higher. Because of the market yeah. increases yes. now. Yes. Right. They benefited from right. the market. Which, market pre- which previously they wouldn't have had to do if they got divorced. Yeah. I actually had a client that there was a difference, the difference of two weeks, and um, opposing counsel, and there was a short dip and it was February, I want to say, uh, that we were dividing a big account. Yeah. And there was a short dip in there. And in the market, opposing counsel, yeah, yeah. And opposing counsel had forgotten or failed or whatever to get over the division paperwork. And in that short period of time, my client's account actually dropped mm-hmm. in value by about $100,000. Wow. And that's when we divided it, yeah. which my client was stilled about because then it went up again the next week. But that that timing thing is it's really important to think about yeah. because it will affect you in either direction. It can up and down. Mm-hmm. You have to think about those things. And the other thing, of course, is if there's going to be an alimony component. Yeah, this is critical. It's critical when you file if you're the recipient and when you serve the complaint for divorce if you're the payer. Because the toll, what people don't understand is there's a clock, basically, that continues to toll to create a durational limit on alimony, how long it's going to have to well, be paid. The length of the marriage. The length of the marriage. Yeah. And the length of the marriage is defined by filing and service. So you could be separated for, say, five years, have an understanding with your spouse where you're paying a certain amount of support each month, but nobody's bothered to file. You're not getting credit back for that time. Your alimony clock for payment is going to start not only from scratch at the time that you file or serve, depending on which role you have, but on top of that, you've just added more years to the clock, which makes it an even longer alimony order. So it's, it's something to really consider. Yeah, so the clock, which is the durational clock, but duration meaning the length of time someone pays alimony to another person, is dictated by the length of the marriage. Right. And the 
the marriage is defined by obviously day one is the date of the marriage, but the end of the marriage is only e- either the filing date of the complaint for the divorce or the service of that complaint on the other spouse. Mm-hmm. So if you're separated for a long period of time and the clock is running, boy, you really get stuck with a lot more you alimony yeah. yep. if you're paying and you get the benefit of it if you're the recipient of right. the alimony. So this clock concept which dictates the duration of a marriage and the duration of an alimony obligation only relates to cases where there's going to be alimony. Right. right? It doesn't affect child support. There's no clock for no. child support. No, right? no clock and, for child but, support. And you also risk, again, with the economy, a good economy or a bad economy. Somebody could have a great job. We've had cases where somebody has a great yeah. job when the divorce starts. By the time the divorce is over, somebody's unemployed. Yeah, right. And it's they true. don't have the ability to pay anything. Yep. Life happens. And it changes changes everything tremendously. Well, I, actually, I just was going to clarify something. I said there's no clock for child support. It's not the same clock. It's not the same clock. Right. No, it's, that's, it's, it's a not clock t- for child support based on the kids. And kids' their age, yeah. Right. Not the duration of the right. marriage. It has nothing right. to do with the, with the length of the marriage. And also, if you wait long enough, there's no, nothing restraining either party from dissipating the marital assets. No, nope. that's right. Until that divorce complaint's filed, all hell can break loose, right? There's no restraining order. No, nothing ensuring good behavior. No legal protections at all. Yeah. And it ends up, again, I have more clients than I can count who will come in and they've filed and now it's, well, he or she did this, that, and there's just, there's no do-overs in divorce. And there are some things that we can make arguments for. But at the end of the day, these protections are in place when you file for a reason. And people should not walk into a divorce scenario and think that they're going to be able to do over the last five or 10 years of their life. It's just not going to work that way. Yeah. The protections that people get when they file the complaint for divorce are what? The automatic restraining order is probably the most important one. Ooh, 411. It stops, yeah. Yeah. It stops anybody from, like you said, dissipating the marital estate. Yeah. Changing insurances, beneficiaries, all kinds of things. Yeah, it's important. That automatic restraining order is important. That wasn't in place when we first started practicing. Yeah. <laughs> because Don't you, date us. Well, you used to have to run in and get a restraining order because pe- people used to run out and start spending money like uh-huh. like crazy. Uh-huh. And before, yeah. That really? Wasn't I never, didn't know that. No, that wasn't always on the summons. Now when did that start? I'm not sure. No, it was in the 80s you. at some point. But I remember people used to start transferring funds and doing. Used to used to automatically have to do that as a motion, and um, yeah, kind of like temp orders. Yeah, you pretty much have to run into on temp orders almost immediately. You used to have to ask for that in your complaint, and uh, and file a motion along with it. And um, it wasn't always on the complaint for divorce. It wasn't always on the summons. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, things change for the better. That that. Yeah, that's important. But people don't all, don't follow that. We know that. I know, but there does at least there is some kind of legal recovery and process once the automatic restraining order is in place. If somebody violates it, that mm. creates some method by yeah. which the damaged party can get some kind of recovery. Yeah. So the, you have a case now where you represent the husband in a case where they've been separated for how many years? Five years or so? Uh, more than that, about seven. Yeah. And there are pensions and 401ks involved on one side, my client's side. And of course, the answer came in from the opposing party and she wants half of all of it up to that date. And 
I'm going to have to try to make some arguments to to preclude that. But I, I have told my client that there's, there's no guarantees. It's discretionary. So at this point, it's hard to say what's going to happen. She's also looking for alimony. And of course, the clock's continued to run this whole time. While they're separated. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so turned a, seven years. Uh, I think it was an 18-year marriage into a 20-something-year marriage, uh, yes. which means, you know, a certain percentage versus indefinite right. retirement age. Yeah. Yeah. And length of the marriage is an important factor. It is. In, in divorce <laughs> cases, right? For alimony purposes and for asset division and Absolutely. liability division purposes. Absolutely. 18 and 20 year, well, 18 year marriage and 22 year marriage are both pretty much long term marriages. But 18, you're looking at 80% of the number of months yeah. you were together versus, and if you're, say, 38 and got married at 20, 18 years, then you do have an end in sight before you retire. Yeah. If you're 20, years and six months, now you've got retirement age and there's not much of a way around it. That's, I mean, as far as the law is concerned, of course, we can always argue for anything we want, right? But yeah. but as far as the way the Alimony Reform Act is written and the, the black letter application of durational limits, 20 years has a huge implication, especially when you're dealing with younger parties. Yeah. 20 years. There's no argument anymore. It's a long-term marriage over long-term. 20 years, right? Retirement age. Yeah. And we're dealing with some modifications for retirement age. We just dealt with one. Yep. Well, after the cases, what was it, Dr. Chin and Marriott? Something like that. I've forgotten the name of the third one. But they all three of those cases where the court said it wouldn't be applied retroactively for retirement age, that makes a huge difference. Now you need that material and substantial change revolving around actually retiring versus just hitting the age. Yeah. yeah. It's a big difference. Yeah. Well, that Alimony Reform Act in 2012 was important changes in Massachusetts, but now yes. we need another one because of the new tax laws, right? right? Now where are we going? Where alimony <laughs> is no longer deductible starting January 2019. But back to our topic, mm-hmm. filing a divorce complaint, why that's important. So we're talking about it's important to end the duration of the marriage, which then limits the amount of alimony someone has to pay. Other other things we want to talk about? About the filing? Well, it also pulls the Band-Aid off and starts the process, right? Right. And right. then you can either, if they, if the other party has an attorney, you can reach out to the other attorney and say, you know, I filed a complaint for divorce for so-and-so. If you want to discuss this, how you serve someone, then you can either have somebody served by a constable yeah. or a deputy sheriff. Or you can have the other attorney accept service on behalf of the party. Reach out to them and say, send them a letter or send the party a letter. I filed a complaint for divorce on behalf of your husband and your wife or your wife. Could you send this to your attorney and see if they'll call me and we could discuss? Mm -hmm. You could start out that way right away without without it being contentious and try to work things out. Yeah. Somehow that complaint for divorce becomes a very big Yes. Emotional, psychological, and financial line. Yes. Right? For yes. People yeah. to cross. Yes. Yeah. And doing it seems to take a lot of fortitude. Well, it also symbolizes the end of a marriage. So obviously Correct. it, you know, needs to be considered seriously. The irony to me is it's just this one page full in the blank form, right? Right. So, right. <laughs> and so it's not that hard to start a divorce. Well, and then you also see you figure out who's on the other side of the case. Mm-hmm. And whether it's going to be a litigious case or whether you're going to be, a, you'll yeah. be able to settle it, you'll know by the attorney. And I think we've all been around long enough to know. Which attorneys we like to work with and yes, which and attorneys which will be we, more difficult. Yes. And who the judge will be. Which um, is a huge, 
You know, and, and huge factor. We've all been before a number of judges, and we know which judges you know expect what they expect. You know, which judges we we have been before and haven't been before. So, and there's a lot of new judges. You you two were recently yes. before a new judge, and um, <laughs> and you know what you know you, you know the different styles of each judge, and you yeah. know what to expect, and you can explain that to your client which type of attorney you're dealing with and the type of judge you're dealing with and also which court we're going to be in, you know, whether it's going to be Norfolk, Plymouth, Middlesex, Bristol, wherever we're going to be. Makes a difference. um, And I think it's important for people to understand that filing a complaint for divorce does not automatically mean that you are going to be unable to settle or that you can't negotiate or that you can't work cooperatively together. But like or Nick that was you just can't saying, reconcile. Or that you can't reconcile. All yeah. of it is, but it is important, like you said, to rip the Band-Aid off and get the process moving. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you're automatically stuck. I think people have an idea that once they file the complaint for divorce, they, they have to you know mediate or try to negotiate for months and months and months and months so that they can file a joint one because it's a negative connotation to just filing a complaint for divorce, when in reality, yeah. we'll continue negotiating for you and knowing who the other attorney is and knowing who the judge is goes a long way to figure out whether or not we're going to be able to get that across the aisle. But filing a complaint for divorce does not automatically equal a fight. trial. It's, a, a, fight. Play, it's yeah. a placeholder. It's it is. Starting, That's what it is. Well, like we said, it's a placeholder in time. It starts. It's, it's, it yeah. starts the clock running. And, and it creates then, protections. Yeah. Well, it ends the clock too. Ends, ends the, clock, the yeah. marriage mm-hmm. clock. Plus, we had two reconciliations this year, right? Where the divorces yes. have been dismissed. We have. Well, yeah. what, well, I had one. The oh, divorce yes. has not been dismissed, but I had one, and they had a talk, and they. I haven't heard from them since, and I'm not going to bother anyone. So that's it. Yeah. And good, I have Good one. news. That's you had right. one last week. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I forgot all about it. We uh, met and filed the uh, joint motion to dismiss the complaint for divorce, and yeah. they've reconciled. And Okay. So it can be a way to— It can to, be undone. It can be undone. And it can be a way for one spouse to say to the other, I'm really serious about this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it, but I, I feel like I have no choice unless something changes and maybe right. changes in the future. Right. Absolutely. Well, it's been a great conversation. It's our first podcast of doing this attorney roundtable, I'll call it. We'll do another one talking about dating during divorce, since you brought up the topic. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, and and other topics I'm sure we'll think of. So I'm going to thank our audience, and thank you, Nick and Cynthia, for joining me today. (laughs) If you're thinking of separating or you have separated and you want to learn a little bit more about what filing a complaint for divorce entails and why it is important to rip off the Band-Aid, so to speak. We're going to be posting an article called We Have Decided to Separate, What Now?, which has references to the various provisions in the law that we spoke about. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals email me at hindel at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.